I had three ideas come across my windscreen this week, and they fit right in with Sukkot. There are things that I had never thought about, so I'm going to try and tell them to you. The first guy was Ron Dart, who I enjoy very much. And if you want a very sound Christian radio preacher, Ron Dart is your man. He's very good, very sound, understands the proper use of the law, understands the feast and all that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, he's passed away now, but they keep him going because he's so good. 1.30, Monday through Friday, KLTT. As I say, he's excellent. He has a series going on right now to match with Fall Feast called Christian Origins. What he's talking about is the fact that the feasts are not Jewish feasts. They are the feasts of God. And up until, I don't remember what year, all the Christian church celebrated the feasts. And it was the Roman persecution that split the, the Jewish church from the Gentile church. And the Gentile church, not wanting to be associated with those Jews, then started putting their own feasts together and abandoned the feasts of the Lord. But they are the feasts of the Lord, not the Jewish feasts. And one of the things he was talking about as he was talking about Sukkot, which he was doing on Friday, is he was going back to the old Negro spirituals and I don't know that they do that anymore, but when I was going through grade school, they taught us those old Negro spirituals. We sang them as part of our lessons, if you will, in grade school. One of the themes there is the theme of crossing Jordan and the idea that this world that we are in is not our home. I can't sing with a whip, so I'm not going to try. But the refrain on that is we're going to the promised land. And the idea is where we are now is not the promised land. The idea is the promised land is over there. And the point Dart made was one of the things about the Sunday church in the West today is we have got really comfortable here. And the church no longer really looks for the promised land. The point he made, which I thought was very good, is that idea was very powerful among slaves. The idea that this slavery that we're in and so forth is only temporary. And we have a home on the other side of Jordan. Yeah, we're here right now and we got to do what we got to do, but our home is there. And if you think about the church at the time of the apostles, being a Christian was something that would get you persecuted. The Roman Empire was a slave-based empire, and the idea that this land we're in now is just temporary and our home is on the other side of Jordan was very powerful. And that's one of the reasons the church exploded like it did. So Sukkot is not a Jewish feast, it's a feast of God. And one of the things that Dart quoted was from Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 16, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and keep the feast of booths. You've all been here long enough and you recognize that the table of sacrifice during Sukkot involves 70 bulls. 
The idea there is there is one bull sacrificed for each of the Gentile nations that is separated from the children of Noah after the flood. So the Feast of Sukkot has always been a feast of the nations. And it will be, again, because in the new heaven and the new earth, anybody who doesn't come up to the Feast of Sukkot gets no rain. So Sukkot is, again, not a Jewish feast. It's a feast of God. So that's the first idea that came across my windscreen this week, listening to Ron Darton. I've been listening to him for a while on the feasts, and as I say, he's very good. He agrees with me. I mean, what can you say? The next one is Rabbi Sachs. And by the way, thank you all for getting me that book by Sachs. I heard this two or three times this week from different sources, and if you tell me something two or three times, I catch right on. The point Sachs is making is the Hebrew Bible and the stories and the way it's laid out is anti-mythology. Now, what does he mean by that? In the pagan world, the idea is there are two forces, two sets of gods usually, they've got different names, and one set of gods is on the good side and they're trying to establish order. And the other set of gods is evil and what they're trying to do is cause chaos. Usually a fight between order and chaos and the idea there is you're trying to restore the situation the way it was example that you probably all know. Take the Lord of the Rings. You got this little band of adventurers and the world has been overcome by an evil force. And what they're trying to do is get rid of the evil force and restore the Shire to the way it was before. So there's something in the past that was idyllic and wonderful and there's some evil thing that has come in and usurped and what we got to do is we got to go back and put it back the way it was. That's very different from the Hebrew Bible perspective. And in the Hebrew Bible perspective, the story is going toward a goal and it never finishes. At the end of the Torah, for example, Moses dies. Moses doesn't complete his mission. Moses doesn't go into the land. The people go into the land, but Moses doesn't. Abraham receives the promises of God. And by the time he dies, those promises have not been fulfilled. He's promised land, and he's promised descendants. He's got one kid, Isaac. And he's got just enough land to bury his wife. That's it. Yet Abraham goes through life in faith... And Abraham realizes that the promise of God is not going to be fulfilled in his lifetime. It's going to be fulfilled sometime far off in the future. So the Hebrew Bible is not so much cyclical, although it is cyclical. You know, we have the cycle of Shabbat, we have the cycle of the feast, all that kind of stuff. But the pagan perspective is it's cyclical. The Hebrew perspective is that history is leading to a point. There's a purpose to all this, and the purpose is yet future for us. So we expect, for example, that Messiah will return. And when he returns, he will establish his kingdom. In the meantime, we are sojourners. This is not our home. 
and we are looking forward to something that is going to happen in the future. That's a very Hebrew perspective as opposed to a pagan perspective. So that's what I got from Sachs. Then the third one, there's this guy I've mentioned before by the name of Bruce Carlton, and he's an Englishman, a Brit, and he sort of regards himself as being in the same mode as J.R.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis. So he writes a lot about that. He came to Christianity very much like C.S. Lewis did. Remember, C.S. Lewis didn't become a Christian until he was a very mature man, and he didn't really want to become a Christian. It's just finally the Holy Spirit pinned his ears back and dropped him to the floor, and he became a Christian. Sort of the same thing happened to Carlton. And where he fetched up, oddly enough, is in Mormon theology. I don't know why of that, but, but anyway. He ever now and then says some stuff that's really insightful. And what he said is, in order for you to choose heaven and choose God, it must be an informed choice. In other words, in order for you to freely choose and have that choice be meaningful, you must understand the alternative. And his point is, this world is the alternative. This world is chaotic. Stuff happens in this world. For example, you know, the classic question, why do bad things happen to good people? You know, those kinds of questions. Why is there suffering? Why does God allow all of this? Why, 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 why? And his point is, this is the alternative. And it's designed to give you an understanding of what eternity living here would be like as opposed to eternity living with God. So the reason it's designed the way it is is to give you the ability to make an informed choice. You understand both systems now because you lived in this one and you have the promise of the other one. So you can freely choose and you can choose knowing what the real choices are. So those are the three things that flew across my windscreen this week. And oddly enough, it all fits with Sukkot. Coincident is not a uh, kosher word. So I figured I was supposed to talk about it. So let's talk about exile, which is what we are in. We are in exile. Or at least we should regard ourselves as being in exile. And in the Hebrew Bible, the exile starts back in Genesis 3. And as a result of disobedience, what happened is we got expelled from the presence of God and we got expelled from the garden. And the whole Hebrew Bible then is the process by which we will return to the garden. In a macro sense, if you will, it's the Lord of the Rings or any of those. Except it's not a local return, it is a global return. We see the history of Israel over and over and over again. They get sent into exile. Why do they get sent into exile? Because they disobey God. So you have these cycles of Israel where they get sent into exile as a result of disobedience. And those are case studies for us so that we can see on a local level what is being said on a macro level in the whole Bible. So the problems of exile, and we are in exile. The first is society is not looking after the concerns or well-being of believers. Anybody doubt that? The global society that we are in exile among is not looking out for our good. 
The laws are different. And one of the things that people get really upset about is, well, the Bible says you've got to do that. Well, yeah, I understand that, but you're in exile. You're not making the laws. The world is. Now, in the United States, we have been extraordinarily blessed because the system was set up based on Torah, but what happens immediately thereafter? We start drifting away. And we start adding stuff, and we start subtracting stuff, and we start attacking the biblical foundation, and so we wind up where we are today. One of the things about being in exile is believers are constantly pressured to conform to the dominant society, called assimilation in the case of Jews. But what our society is constantly doing is pressuring us to conform to their way of seeing things. The other thing is, as believers, we really don't have any power. Now, lots of us can raise to positions of power, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. But the dominant ethos right now is the separation of church and state. One of the things that's going to be happening as we have the confirmation of Judge Barrett is she's going to be attacked. Are you going to bring your religion into the court? That's going to be one of the attacks. So the idea is that the world system that we are in exile in is hostile to what God says we should do. And that's just a fact of exile. Now, there's three approaches we can take in exile. And, as it would be, God has provided us case studies of each of those three approaches. Nice thing about the Bible, God has anticipated all the stuff we need. Your four cases of exile in the Bible are Joseph in Egypt, Moses in the Exodus, the book of Daniel in Persia, and the book of Esther also in Persia. So what you have is four case studies of how believing Hebrews behave in exile. And you can see how they behave, and you can see what results. Joseph first. Joseph, of course, gets the double portion. Joseph gets the blessing of Abraham. Joseph is chosen by Pharaoh. Now, God gives him a dream and puts him in a position where Pharaoh can make that choice, but Pharaoh is the guy that appoints him. And Joseph's perspective is go along, get along. Very competent administrator, does a very good job, but he is Pharaoh's man. And what he winds up doing is setting up a police state for Pharaoh. Everybody winds up being enslaved to the state, and the Jews eventually wind up being enslaved to the state. That's the whole purpose of the book of Exodus. So he doesn't make waves, he's Pharaoh's man organizes things really well and one of the things about the tribe of Joseph is Joseph was sanded off during the Assyrian invasion and they have become the ten lost tribes so they have disappeared what I'm suggesting to you is the concept of becoming Pharaoh's man has got some downsides to it makes you comfortable things run really well and all that kind of thing, but there are some downsides. And that's what you see in the story of Joseph and then 
of course, the story of Manasseh and Ephraim, the northern kingdom. Number two, Moshe. Who's Moshe chosen by? God. God is the one that chooses Moses. God is the one that sets him up. God is the one that ships him into Egypt and wrecks the place. For us, Moses is not really an option because Moses is set up by God when God is ready to move something. And if God grabs you by the stacking swivel and says, all right, I want you to go into wherever and confront them, by all means go. But God will choose you and make that decision for you. You don't get to decide, I'm going to be the Moses. So Moses, of course, is a Levite. He's got a temper. He goes in and wrecks all of Egypt and takes the people of Israel out of there. That's not a pattern that I'm suggesting we're called to follow. One of the things about Moses is he doesn't get to go into the land. Now, there's a rabbinic story which I love very much that says in the resurrection, the generation in the wilderness is going to raise from their graves and they are going to come into the land led by Moses. I like that a lot. So the next one is Daniel. And Daniel is Judah. Daniel is chosen by Nebuchadnezzar. He's set up and organized by God. In other words, God gives him the visions and all that kind of stuff. And what Daniel chooses is cooperation. So Daniel cooperates with Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel makes things run well. But Daniel doesn't ever really become absorbed. Remember, we have the business with the fiery furnace. We have the business with all of the attempts to make him submit and assimilate. He never does that. And the same thing with his buddies in the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They don't ever assimilate, but they cooperate with the place where they're in exile. So Daniel becomes second in command of Persia. He is a competent administrator. He does things well. Things go well for his people while he's an administrator, but he never assimilates. And furthermore, he is the agent of the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar to the God of the Hebrews. Daniel is a really good example for you to follow in exile. Everything Daniel does is oriented to God, but it's also oriented to making things good for his own people. And then there's Mordecai. And as I've said many times, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. Mordecai is lethal. And what we have there is the dominant society decides it wants to kill all the Jews. So Mordecai steps up and he proceeds to wreck the place. And he winds up as second in command of Persia, again, just like Daniel did. And I can tell you, quite frankly, he terrified the Persian king because you never saw it coming. But he did not assimilate. What he did was he saved his people and made sure that his people continued to be a recognizable people and able to continue to worship their God. So Daniel and Mordecai, I am suggesting to you, become really good case studies on how we should behave in exile. So given that, what are you supposed to do? Now, let me read you a couple of pieces of scripture. 
First one is 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the case study of what the alternative to heaven is like. That's what that's saying. So you got to live here until you come up on natural death. you got to be here, but don't fall in love with the place. Recognize that your home is not here. You're in exile. And don't get attached to the place to the point where you can't give any particular thing up if you need to, to do what God is calling you to do. That's what that means. It doesn't mean that you should be uncomfortable in the world. It doesn't mean that you should be miserable, although the world will provide you plenty of opportunities for that. But what it says is, don't attach yourself to here. And lots of people do attach themselves to here. And as I've said in the past, the phrase for that is, he who dies with the most toys wins. Those are people who are attached to the world. That's not your attitude or shouldn't be. So the second scripture I want to give you is from Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, of course, is writing during the time of the Babylonian exile. And as background for this piece of scripture, what's going on is you've got some Jewish zealots who are in Babylon, and they're saying, the Lord is with us, let us rise up and break their chains and let's get the heck out of this place. That's the background. Jeremiah writes them a letter. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So who sent them into exile? God. All you people that I just sent into exile, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your son and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So what God is saying to Israel there is, I put you there, you're going to stay there until I say you're leaving. So what you want to do is you want to cooperate with the place where I sent you. You want to pray for them. You want to work for them. You want to do your best to make the place better because the better you make that place, the better your life will be. That's what Jeremiah says in exile. Pop that up to us today. There are a whole lot of people in the body of Messiah that say, oh, I'm not going to engage in the political process. I'm not going to vote. I'm not going to do any of that stuff because they're unrighteous. Yeah. They're evil. Yeah. But what you're doing is you are abandoning the playing field to the enemy. What God says to do is you get involved. Remember, both Daniel and Mordecai became second in command in Persia. You get involved. 
You seek the good of this land. You do your best to make this place better because the better this place is, the easier your exile will be. That's the instructions that we have. Furthermore, be like Daniel. Go find your Nebuchadnezzar and talk to him about the God of the Hebrews. Talk to him about the God that rules the earth. Talk to him about the God who has his breath in his hand. Bring people in your exile out of this world and orient them to the fact that this isn't their home either. God has given you case studies. You can see how these people in exile handled themselves. You can see what the results are. And you can see what the results are over centuries not just 20 minutes. And what I'm suggesting to you for us, unless one of you folks happens to be a Moses, and God will let you know, the two guys you want to look at are Daniel and Mordecai. And if things are really going bad and your people are being threatened, become a Mordecai, which means that you take out the bad guys. If your people are not being threatened, become a Daniel. Make the place run well. Make it prosper. Speak to the people around you. Bring them into your kingdom. But by all means, in both cases, engage in the political process of the place where you are in exile. The Bible gives you everything you need. It gives you case studies. It gives you examples. It lets you see what's going on. Pay attention to it. And don't roll some cockamamie theology of your own and go off into the corner and say, I'm not going to play. That's wrong. It's not biblical. <laughs>